Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 139th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that tells you yesterday how to make money tomorrow. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product, with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin'. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good good night, I say. I should say. How are you doing? Very good, Travis. How are you doing? All right. Great. We'll keep the introductions to a minimum here because we're a little tighter on time uh our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com the leading mtg finance community sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection track your specs and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby and what's on the agenda this week this week we have a show in four parts segment one our top movers we'll look at the cards that have moved the most in price this week segment two our cards to watch cards james and i think will rise in price in the future Segment three, our metagame we can review. We'll talk about uh, the Star City team event this past weekend. The, congratulations to Todd Stevens on second. Uh, the classic standard, and there's an MTGO standard event from two days ago. So we'll kind of look across the range of those. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week. We're going to talk a little bit more about Mythic Edition again. It's been a hot commodity in our in our, uh, in our our field here. Uh, and there's been some activity on that just in the last two days. So worth revisiting. We're going to start off. Segment one, our top movers, our first card of the week, Charmed Pendant out of Odyssey. Foils from five and change up to about $10 or $11 for a little double up. This is an Odyssey foil, so supply is very low. It's not in very many decks. It is very good in Sidisi the Brood Tyrant. I stumbled upon it when I was building her, and on EDH track, it is by far the best commander, um, the most popular commander for Charmed Pendant. Uh, It can make a lot of mana for one tap. One activation, which is pretty cool. Uh, if you fit some more scry of type effects or top of the library manipulation in there, it gets even better. Um, so while I don't see demand surging for this, nor will it ever, we are talking about Odyssey foils, so that you're pretty safe at 11. Honestly, this thing could be $30, and I wouldn't really bat an eye because even though the supply, the demand is fairly low, supply is nothing. Yeah. Next on the list, we've got Circle of Protection Green from 7th Edition. Uh, foils moving, in theory, from 3 to 7. We've seen 7th Edition Circles on this list many a time over the last couple of years, and it leads me to believe that as it goes through various cycles of being mopped up and then retracing, uh, there are probably a very small number of individuals that have been trying to corner these pointlessly over some period of time. Um, largely, you're just going to want to ignore that and move on. Yep, and I think there we actually had another one or two, another one on the list further up, and I that I deleted, and I actually dismissed the green one. Uh, so definitely still some action on these guys. Following that is Risk Factor out of Guilds of Ravnica, non foils, uh, foreign change up to about nine fifty for again a little about a little more than a double up. Risk Factor is the jumpstart uh, card out of Guilds that has the. Uh, decision point on it your opponent gets to choose uh there's a term for them and it escapes me at the moment um every time one of these comes out people think it's good and every time it is bad i don't know when the last time one of these cards was good i don't think this is the time either and the numbers say you shouldn't either uh if you know something that well i guess other people think they know it now that it's up to 950 10 bucks i think it's seen a little bit of play in mono red but i really would not i would sell these so hard yeah, I have two different angles on this. Uh, definitely a fall set rare that hits 10 is worth selling. <clears throat> However, uh, the fact that you get to do this one twice makes it better than the browbeat uh, contingent that has unfurled itself uh, over many years and, ha- as you said, has never been good. Um, I think that's biasing uh, the uh, evaluations this time around. This is seeing play in both standard and modern um, and Obviously, the modern play is more experimental than the standard play, but the reality is that getting a bunch of cards versus dealing four damage in a very aggro-oriented deck uh, can be just what the doctor ordered. 
Well, I'm not going to say that it, th- none of these will ever be good, but I guess I'm not on board, and I don't think I ever will be. It'll be it'll be good in spite of my expectations, I should say. Fair. What's next? So, Katvu Layer, uh, apparently from Invasion Foils, going from two fifty to five dollars. Um, smattering of play in casual circles and EDH. Otherwise, just ignore it. Okay. Uh, following that is Thran Dynamo foils from Urza's Destiny. We just talked about these a week or two ago. The foils have been gone from 50 to 100. Now we're looking at 100 to 230. Um, I still don't see a market price change on these. I don't know when the last foil copy of Thran and Dynamo has sold anywhere. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I thought 50 was too low at the time, and I thought 100 seemed somewhere around reasonable, possibly even could go higher. 230 is definitely beyond what I would expect. Um, so I don't actually know what the real price of this is. The market will decide. Yeah, this is, this is just the yo-yo, price yo-yo you see when uh, a very old rare card gets down to a low enough inventory level that the price is whatever somebody decides they want to get that day. So if the highest the, somebody's got a nice fat baited hook that they're hoping somebody's going to chew off at 299 and some guy comes in and goes listen i got one of these like years ago it's been sitting around in my binder i'd be happy to get 199 then you're going to see the price drop until that copy sells and then it's going to bounce back up so i would expect this to you know seesaw like that in between uh 100 and 250 or so and slowly the you know da- the lowest possible price is going to work its way up the chain uh still a really huge card in edh always will be um so the original set foils are they're going to be a gainer uh yeah i agree i mean if you have them there's no reason to sell them right now unless someone will pay you 230 dollars in which case you should sell it well especially if you have something good to put it in like we do currently (laughs) yeah that's true what's next uh, Siren Storm Tamer from Ixalan foils going from five dollars to ten dollars. It was part of uh, eighth place deck at the SSG Standard Classic Columbus uh, on the weekend, and uh, people still not one hundred percent sure where this meta is going to net out for Standard. There seems to be uh, a lot of possibles, um, and it's not one hundred percent clear who which decks are going to crystallize as tier one. Um, Storm Tamer foils. It, it, has some outside chance at posting up in modern for a period of time in the right deck. Uh, but I think, I think if for some reason you have a stack of these, you just go ahead and sell them. I reached out to a friend of mine who's hard on the GP circuit. He's played in a lot of the last several pro tours. He's very involved in standard. And I'm like, what the hell is this card doing on this list? And he pointed me to the mono blue tempo list that uh, had done well. Uh, and he conjectured that it had to do with the fact that it was a, a budget list and standard that looked playable, uh, which I thought was an interesting comment because I, he's completely correct. Like, that's definitely where the demand is coming from. And I was trying to remember when the last time we saw an uncommon and standard really hold a price tag of four or five dollars or more. Uh, and or in this case, I mean, supposedly 10, but you can buy them for five or six right now. So 10 is not a real number. Uh, but these are the these these are the foils. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. The foils are on here. Then the, the non foils are up to five. That's what it is. Uh, yeah. But the, the topic of whether or not you can have a, I kind of we we're talking about whether you can have a budget standard deck. And I'm kind of of the opinion that you basically can't have a budget standard deck because, and that's by design. Where even if you show up one weekend with a deck full of commons and uncommons and a bulk rare, uh, and you do really, and the deck is cheap when you build it, uh, if it's good, it will get popular. And it will not be budget anymore because the prices will go up. Or if it really is all commons and uncommons, uh, such that the there it doesn't need mythics or rares, uh, and and it, so the card prices can't really be high. I don't think that that will be good. Just based on the way Magic has been designed, it's extraordinarily unlikely they would print a suite of cards at common and uncommon that were good enough that they could battle all of the other rares and mythics in standard. And wouldn't need any of them. You know, you can start out with a budget list and standard, but it will probably get upgraded to a full-fledged list when people like, oh, well, why don't we add a second color and throw rare rare lands in and add this one other color card from another color because it's essentially free in terms of card space. Um, so I don't know. Just thought it was interesting that we were chatting about it. I'm like, I don't think you can build a perpetually 
successful budget deck and standard. And I can't remember any of them since I've been playing FNM since Zendikar. Uh, I mean, I'm sure once or two weekends they've popped up and done well, but they tend to be you know one dimensional or get hated out or get expensive. Uh, this deck has actually been doing pretty well uh, online. It's five owed multiple leagues uh, this week and, you know, has the eighth place finish at the classic, which is not an open, of course, and certainly not a GP. Um, but I have seen streamers running the deck and, and so forth. So, I mean, in terms of EV, I think you just, you know, if you're looking for the cheap option, you know, even if this isn't true tier one, it's probably good enough for, you know, $14 on Magic Online or $50 in paper. It's pretty sweet. Um, and I'm going to certainly going to drag whatever storm tamers I can find out and try to sell them this week. Yeah, it is a cool deck. Um, for sure. And it, I mean, it might be, it might be okay. I guess if it's all it really is just all commons and uncommons and not really much in the way of rares, uh, I'm dubious that it will have the durability to stand up to a season of standard, but it's okay. Let's move on. Uh, stitch in time foils out of guild pact. I I was trying to figure out if there was something going on here other than just a old foil with a cool take turns effect. I don't see any new commanders jumping on it. I didn't notice any decks taking, you know, picking it up. Did you see something that I'm missing? <clears throat> well, it's Zender Split and Okun, Eye of Chaos from uh, Battle Bond. Yeah. Is probably uh, driving this on the six month echo, which is pretty normal for commander, right? Like we see if there was inventory aplenty um, or a moderate amount of inventory when a commander is released and MTG Finance crew doesn't jump on the card right away, then it can take three, six, nine, twelve months for something to drain out. And that looks like it's probably what happened here. Yeah, it could be. Um, and I'm, I'm not discounting that. I just was trying to figure out if there was something other than just general attrition on it. And I, I don't see anything. I mean, keep in mind, decision time is still only registered in less than a thousand decks on EDH rec. So I think <laughs> if you happen to randomly have a foil sitting around, you go ahead and flip it. Yeah. Uh, after that, Banefire non-foils out of core 19, um, looking like a dollar fifty to three fifty or so for a little over 100 percent, essentially a meaningless a very hard to capitalize on price movements also in a couple different places. It was originally in Alara. I think it was printed in a couple other spots too. It was pretty popular in the red decks this weekend. Saw it in a lot of sideboards, um, but I don't think this price movement really means much of anything. It's going to be hard to realize gains on Banefire and there's so many copies out there. There's no way you can make much in the way of uh, meaningful money. Yeah, I don't love it. I, this is, this is in that, the op- whatever the opposite of a sweet spot is a dead spot um this is a dead spot card and moving al- right along experimental frenzy out of guilds of Africa moving from two dollars to five dollars that's also kind of a, a a dead spot but i feel somewhat vindicated because this is a card that i flagged as giving me the tingles early on on twitter and then when we talked about it with todd stevens i said yeah i've been burned on aggressive mining style cards before but this one feels more like you know, the kind of thing that is going to do damage somewhere at some point. And sure enough, it's doing some damage in standard. Yeah, it is showing up in uh, the mono red steamkin deck. Uh, one of them from the MTGO PTQ, I think, was playing two or three of them. Uh, and we know Steamkin's been very popular as well. So there's some um, interest there. I don't, again, expect this price to, you know, five bucks seems kind of high for, again, for deck that's mostly commons and uncommons. But uh, I think it'll keep showing up. So it'll probably hang around in the dollar to two range overall. Wake me up when this like makes its mark in modern. When somebody figures out how to cast a whole bunch of spells in a row and win the game. Um, because, again, as a standard rare that's sliding up towards $5 on hype, it's going to get overwhelmed by supply in short order here um, within the next two to four weeks. And it's going to slide back down the other direction. Now the, the uh, decks that are running it have to be running it as a four of, and they have. And once people have bought their decks for the season, very relatively few people switch decks on a regular basis unless they are in the hunt to, you know, for competitive titles. I'm really curious what the numbers on that are. Um, how often people change decks uh, in a standard format, uh, but I don't think we'll ever have them. <laughs> I can I can only I can only speak anecdotally that in my many many years of attending F and M's and GPs, 
and seeing and local tournaments seeing the same people playing the same deck throughout most of the season is very common the only people that don't seem to do it are the ones who like i said are in the hunt if you're in the hunt you got to switch decks because you got to adjust to the metagame um, yeah but that that doesn't describe the average fnm or most of the the guys that are on one deck are just fodder for the dudes that switch decks mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's plenty of fodder i yeah i would be cool to see if you could get it broken down by like deck type like oh the guy who builds red stays red all season and just tweaks it but the guy who builds thrag tusk omni door changes every four weeks type of thing i know i for for like I think there was probably close to a year period where I did I changed a different deck every week. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I accept that I am definitely far, not necessarily the norm. I think you can also see it borne out in the fact that by mid-season, most spikes only are only related to cards that are newly discovered. And when new tech or a new deck emerges and a card that was on the sidelines doing nothing is suddenly valuable. It can go from two to five. If it's a rare, it can go from like five to 15 if it's a mythic. Um, And that can happen again when new cards are announced for the next set and it activates some card that's been on the sidelines, but you very rarely see something that was like spiking hard in the fall, keep spiking as the season goes on. You almost always see a retrace um, with one or two exceptions per set, generally speaking. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's next for us? Next, we've got Journey to Eternity Atzal Cave of Eternity, which is the flip card from Rivals of Ixalan. Uh, this is the one that brings creatures back from your graveyard, I believe. Uh, going from two fifty to seven dollars. Uh, popular in major EDH decks, but I think that people have been experimenting with this in standard as well. I can't imagine that this is the non-foils are spiking from EDH play alone. I, I mean, I guess it's standard. Uh... It is good in the two most two very popular EDH decks, Mildroth on Marin, which are a big deal. Um, but I, I guess standard play is fine too. Did you did you notice this someplace? Because I didn't see it when I was poking <clears throat> around. Yeah, it was eighth place at the team open in Columbus uh, this last weekend. Uh, okay, but, but they played like a single copy in the main. So yeah. I'm, I'm going to call this bad speculation activity. Like single copy standard rare is not really what you want to be chasing for yeah. profit um, yeah. i'll be very surprised if this doesn't retrace in a hurry yeah agreed um next up card i feel like we can't go 12 <laughs> months without talking about yeah. necrotic ooze uh mirrored in non-foils two dollars to twelve dollars for a nearly 500 percent gain uh apparently some guy in a hat uh i will leave you to, to view the hat on your own um on Star City, wrote an article uh, about Doom Whisperer and Necrotic Ooze. The idea being that with Doom Whisperer, that's the one with the pay to life surveil to. With that in your graveyard, Necrotic Ooze can then immediately start churning through, finding the creatures you need to turn on Necrotic Ooze, which then turns on your combo. So basically, if you have a Doom Whisperer in your graveyard and a Necrotic Ooze in play, you can go off, assuming you have more than, you know, t- 10 life, basically. Uh, so the so okay. this is just another modern necrotic ooze combo. Now I will give him that it is sort of like a one card. I'm going to say a two card combo, right? Necrotic ooze plus one other piece. I will give him that it seems better than anything else we've had in the past because all the other necrotic ooze combos you had to have two specific pieces in your graveyard before you could start doing anything. Just a little better than it was. Uh, but this price spike is definitely all speculation. People have been itching for this card to move in price and are going to jump on it at any provocation. Uh, I don't think we've seen any sell at the a new price of $10 or more. I was going to go through. I didn't get a chance to dig my copies out because I know I still have a pile of them from ages ago and try and list one or two to see if I get any traction. But uh, <clears throat> unless this pans out in modern real quick, it is going to plummet. This is interesting because it's actually a toolbox deck with a bunch of other combos built into it. It's got the Visera Seer, Vizier of Remedies, uh, uh, Eldritch Evolution, uh, Devoted Druid stuff that we've seen in other uh, toolbox decks over the last few years. 
Um, I would certainly like to see Eldritch Evolution take off. I would be happy to see my Elder- Vizier Remedies foils <laughs> sell. Uh, always happy to see more pressure on Noble Hierarchs while I still have any in stock. Um, there's only two Doom Whispers in this deck, but whatever. If, if this moves some Necrotic Oozes north of 10, I'm happy to sell my copies I acquired at a dollar in February of 2015 and get them out of my, my box of shame. 2015? That's uh, that's late to the game, buddy. What year was Scars of Mirrodin? It was like 20, 2011. I'm so already 20- embarrassed enough I've been holding anything for three years. Like, If it was any longer, I'm not even sure I can mention it in the same breath, breath without choking. Dude, I you know what? I, sh- I should do a YouTube where I dig out my spec box. You should. And flip through it. <laughs> and we, try and justify every single one of those cards of the camera. <laughs> may as well be like everybody else and do a drinking episode and then we can do pull out our spec box and make fun make fun of our each other for Ugh. bad decisions. Yeah. Uh all right, what's after that? Uh Yavamaya Enchantress from Urza's Destiny, original foils going from a dollar fifty to in theory fifteen dollars. Um I'm assuming that this is on the back of people looking to play Enchantment Matters decks uh after is it Estrid? Uh Estrid? yes. No. Yeah. Um, yeah, out of, uh, is that the Planeswalker? Yeah, it's something very close to that, if that's not what it is. Or is Estrid the, I want to be sure it's not the, oh no, Amanatu is the, uh. The top of the library one. Yeah, so yeah, Estrid the Masked is the Planeswalker that is Enchantments Matters. Um, so I'm assuming this is to do with that. Um, there's been a bunch of printings of this card, so I can believe that the pack foils from Urza's many moons ago are now at their tipping point whether you're going to sell any over 10 who knows i have a lot of cards like this that i like tend to pick up in in the process of a a tipping point taking place i might acquire one or two copies of cards like this i don't have any of this one i don't think um but this is the kind of thing that takes long time to sell and then poof just magically sells one day and who knows why Mm -hmm. um but this is like your six, nine, twelve month hold kind of thing, and you don't want to be too deep. Yeah, I, and I, I'm familiar with those. I've got some of them. I think like a week ago, I sold a foil Japanese privilege position for like thirty five dollars that I had had listed on TCG Player since they added foreign language support. So <laughs> sometimes that stuff takes a while to uh, to trigger. Um, so I, you know, you could probably get the fifteen bucks for it. Just who knows how long it'll take. Um. Finishing off this week is Moonlit Wake out of Mercadian Masks Foils, 50 cents to $9, supposedly. And uh, just strikes me as somebody cleaning out Mercadian Masks Foils and going for cheap stuff. Uh, I mean, we've seen a lot of Mercadian Masks Odyssey Invasion Foils over the last couple of weeks, and I don't see why this is any different. I don't see any EDH decks that care about this. It's not in modern. Uh, I don't know who would want it to be. Yeah, as is so often the case, the biggest gainer of the week is is often a mystery <laughs> and and more likely to be about very slow dwindling supply than anything yeah. else. All right, let's jump in the segment to our cards to watch. James, why don't you get us started <clears throat> this week? I can burn through this pretty quickly. Spell Queller foils were particularly exciting to be in the 8 to $10 range, but even at 16 I think they've got room to grow. Um, shows up in a couple of different important decks in, in Modern, including Spirits and uh, Blue-White Control uh, and various builds. And I have every confidence that these are going to get up to $30 in foils. The ramp is already quite steep. There is reasonable amount of supply still out there, but it's dwindling all the time, and, and I see a very steep ramp for Okay. Them. I think that's very fair. Uh, I'm po- pretty sure positive we have talked about Foil Spellcaller before. So there's definitely some precedent yep. for it as well. Um, back, back when the price was much better. <laughs> well, yeah. But even still, it's still a good position. Bat Spirits keeps coming up in conversation. I know it's a, it's a kind of a staple deck in modern at the moment. So uh, it's good positioning. Well, and originally what you would have been early, holding longer but and looking at a double or a triple. Now you're looking at at, at best okay. a double well still some meat on the bone in any case uh my first card this week is command beacon looking at the judge promos currently about 35 dollars right now i think those could get 60 maybe even 70 dollars it's in 12.5 12 and a half thousand edh decks right now uh for a reasonably recent card the non-foils just like the pack copies are 25 27 
and we're, the judges are 35, start at 35. So there's a really narrow gap there at the moment, but the supply at 35 isn't deep. It ramps up to 50 pretty quickly. Um, and again, this is a judge promo. We're unlikely to see any other foil copies of this card. They will keep printing it in EDH decks, but probably not in foil. This is also, I believe, last year's judge promo. I think you might be out of the woods on a rerun of this, but I can't promise you that. I'm not perfectly clear on how they decide that. Um, if you get a rerun, this will pull back. But the non-foil copies, like I said, are $25, $27. Another judge run isn't going to inundate the market. There's not going to be a massive flood. The price on this isn't really inflated at the moment. So even though a second judge run would pull the price back, I, I, it's hard to imagine. It's not going to be cheaper than the normal copy, right? Um, and I think that just sets you up for a better you're still going to be in position to be able to hit 60 with it because it's just such a popular card. And if they do another judge run, that will, that will be it. That will hundred percent be it. Yeah. I'm not actually a hundred percent sure on the timing, whether it's too late for this card to get reprinted in that way. <clears throat> um, I know that I exited on some of these that I get, got in on at 20 for forty nine fifty to Abu. Uh, Alphabet Unlimited um, in the spring, I believe. Um, so there was an even better entry point. If it doesn't get reprinted, it's got nowhere to go but up. Um, if it does, like you said, uh, you stumble for a bit and then you go right back mm -hmm. onto the original curve. Yep. Pretty easy. All right. So you have a, a real good one for your second pick here. <laughs> <laughs> really paving the way. Can people, can, can people guess... Um, with hindsight being 2020, what I'm calling as the most obvious and clearly best uh, pickup of the year that was not on the reserve list. This is the first confidence 10 that I've issued all year. Um, and that pick mm. is Mythic Edition. Um, most of the USGPs are now sold out. Plenty of the international ones are not. There's still a GP in Vancouver that is not sold out, last I checked. Um, you should be buying these and then selling these, and the sooner the better. Um, copies out of Montreal, where people picked up copies for you and me, thanks to your friends for that, and other folks uh, did similar uh, for me. Most of that worked out well, copies in hand, going out the door for... Not a clean double up on the first, you know, five or 10 copies I sold, but 60 or 70% profit. And certainly 100% plus is possible, um, probably in the short term and then again in the long term, with the midterm being a little bit of a question mark. I suspect what's going to happen here is that as each week of GP, GP access unfolds alongside all the copies that just got shipped by Hasbro or are being shipped by Hasbro to fulfill people's orders. Um, there's going to be a lot of downward pressure on the set prices. And I think that they will retrace from the $600 they're at right now back down to 450 to 500 probably. And then as time goes on and those get picked off, um, you'll see it get back up into that you know, five to $600 range, and then probably hang out there for quite some time. Um, I'm not sure I believe that anytime in a relevant time frame, this is going to be an $800 item, but it's been a good one. And it's so probably going to probably be not clear. You like, I just want to make sure I, I caught this. You like getting them now at 450, 400. No, I like oh, placing oh, an order. Okay, okay. Like just trying to get them at market from the existing <laughs> supply. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, two thing two things I've been doing, one more innovative than the other. Um, one that we both did was paying people to pick up copies when they told us they weren't interested in doing so. Um that was mostly successful, although I've had two different people and uh catch a solid case of the FOMOs. And then dip into a wildly dishonorable <laughs> uh, lying spree names, trying names. to backpedal and get out of the uh -oh. very clear deals we made. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I get that you're now disappointed that the thing that you bought for me 
and got paid to do so could have made you that money if it had been your deal. But the reality is I sent you the money and sent you the extra for yourself. And that is a done deal. We have a contract and you need to deliver the goods. <laughs> the one, the funniest guy tried about five different lies to explain himself and then finally remembered because I pointed it out to him <laughs> that he had sent me the receipt, like a picture of the receipt for the sets he purchased. And then the person he told me to gave as a referral told me that they had popped up on a local message board I'm not a part of selling the cards that they were supposed <laughs> to have picked up for me. At, at which point they finally turned the corner and remembered their own ethics. Or <laughs> I don't know if they remembered their ethics, but they remembered there was such a thing as ethics. And went ahead and sent me the the difference in the price that I was paying them versus the price that I eventually had to source replacements for. So that's fine. But the more the more innovative way to do this is to offer good-hearted people that are planning on just keeping this as a collectible. Um, offer them 20 or 25 bucks, rent it from them, sell it, ship it, and then get a copy from some future GP and replace it, which is the closest you're going to get to being able to quote unquote short magic cards um that I've ever seen, at least outside of Magic Online, where there has been have been some opportunities in the past to mess around with foils versus non-foils and kind of do a similar thing. Um but the bottom line is I think that prices in the midterm go down, so you want to be selling now into the hype. And then, you know, the person that was just going to sit on it gets a little bit extra money, makes their copy cheaper. Um, you get to sell into that hype spike. Hopefully you're correct that, or I'm correct that prices are going to experience downward pressure before they go up again and everything works out for you. So you think I'm a, a, a fool for thinking about holding my copies, huh? I just assume that you think that they're going to go even higher. I do. I do. I, you know, the GP schedule. So I have no problem whatsoever with doing the, you know, selling them now for a guaranteed profit of anywhere between 75 and 110 percent i think that's that's totally great and frankly possibly what i'm supposed to be doing especially because of how much capital you get tied up in these pretty fast um uh the gp schedule runs that these are available at runs through uh december does not go into next year so you'll have a glut of these between now and the end of the year but I would expect by January or February supply to have really started drying up. But people will have started to pick up their the copies that were sourced from GPs or whatever uh, from people who are reselling them and that liquid market's going to dry up. So possibly by spring of next year, uh, we could see prices on this start catching back up pretty good um, as people obtain theirs. Yeah, there's there's and 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 run the market short, right? Mark run the market out. So, uh, and I'm not positive that that'll happen. I, you know, that's my that's my ideal time frame, but I can't be sure. Yeah, and there's two factors that can potentially prop up the price longer term. One is that demand for all eight of the planeswalkers is persistent. Um, one of my fears is that uh, Elspeth, uh, Tezzeret, Teferi, and what am I forgetting? Liliana um, are the planeswalkers people are going to be most after. And so that the set's price will eventually collapse in on whatever the market is bearing for those four cards. Plus, I've been estimating something like $25 at peak supply for the other four. Now, the market's doing better than that right now, commanding a premium where Teferi and Liliana are beating 150 for the most part. Um Tezzeret and Elspeth are pushing, I think, 80 to 100, and the others have been somewhere in the anywhere from $35 to $55 range. So that supports a $500 to $600 market price. If the price is fold in on, on those longer term, that could exert downward price pressure. But one of the countervailing pressures is that, as we said, I think last cast, um, I don't think that this is the last we see of Masterpiece Planeswalkers. I think they have every intention of doing this exact thing again, hopefully smooth, in a smoother fashion. Um, apparently they set up a Shopify site and told everybody to go rebook their orders there this week. <laughs> uh, so. I did. I, yeah, well, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. 
So anyway, what, what that means is that uh, I, I, I suspect they are there are more planeswalkers coming in three months. Um, and it's entirely possible that people will get their hands on one of those sets and then decide they they feel antsy because they don't have the the full set, which is then going to set them on the path to go buy the originals. Hmm. Okay. So now, now there's one of the one of the reasons I'm I'm selling sooner, um, even though I believe I totally believe in the long term for this product, is because you can still get some. So for as long as I can keep getting my hands on copies, I'm happy to sell a five or six hundred dollar copy and then use that to get almost two uh, additional copies and then sell those and then get four and sell those and get eight. And for as long as I can push that math, um, I might as well try because nothing is better than multiplying your your money multiple times in the same four week period. Yeah, I mean, if you can set up the purchases on that for sure, no question there. Well, that's that's where that's where the rental comes in, and you know, locking down as many sets as you can at varying GPS. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm now expecting a like ten to twenty percent uh, welcher rate. <laughs> for mm. partners involved in this i definitely suggest that anything you're trying to do along these lines you want to make sure you can trust the people you're dealing with um make you know go so far as to put everything in writing and make sure that both parties have agreed to it in writing um and you know might want to rethink doing everything by paypal gift until the product is in hand just to make sure that everybody's protected um you can always you can always settle the uh, the fee difference between PayPal gift and normal PayPal payments after the fact um, as a condition of the agreement. Um, the bounty for having done it correctly. Exactly. I mean, that's relatively simple, right? They can refund you and you can pay again as a gift um, after the fact, mm-hmm. usually. Anyway, bottom line is Mythic Edition has been excellent. Um, I was surprised in talking to many people in the MTG Finance community that uh, many of them were not uh, interested in pursuing it. Uh, that is has turned out to be a definite mistake, and I think it's going to be interesting when, if and when that second set lands in the winter, I think they're going to be uh, a lot less, a, a lot less people caught flat-footed. But then again, I thought that after every time masterpieces made this money, <laughs> I I question. Uh, I think that the likelihood of a second print run is pretty solid. I do kind of wonder. Uh, whether wizards sort of learned their lesson at all. And, and it's hard to say, and we could probably go on as this could be. Well, I guess we're just sort of bleeding in the segment four here, our t- discussions about mythic edition. So, but I wonder if wizards is going to kind of look at it and go, well, the reason that we had to pull back on masterpieces to begin with is because we saturated the market with it the first time, right? Like we shouldn't have done 45 a block. We should have done like 12 uh, and I wonder if with that hindsight, they will decide that uh, they should have uh, to not do a set of like 15 or, tw- or 20 or whatever of these. How many are in the box? Is it only eight? Yeah, there's eight. eight if, the, if Maybe they will decide that doing eight and eight and eight is too many uh, and just leave it at eight. And then that sets them up to do eight more and whatever comes after Ravnica. I don't know. I I, mm-hmm. I, not, I I think the odds of them doing more are pretty good, but I do wonder if they're going to go a different direction and try and pull back. Not that that really has a large bearing on whether or not you should buy or sell Mythic Editions today. I, I think that they have definitely been given pause about how they unfurl this, say, a year from now. But I think the projects that are on the schedule for... Q1 2019 are already locked in. Well, yeah, but the, the the information that would influence the decision I am referring to would have been figured out like two years ago, right? Like back when they pulled masterpieces, when they made the decision to pull masterpieces at that time, they would have had to make the decision whether or not to go ahead and release, you know, another 40 or whatever, or 24, I guess, for Ravnica, which would have been two years um, ago. I'm actually not, ago. I'm not convinced that all three Ravnica blocks get them. I think I, I'm still expecting the third Ravnica set to be something very weird, like Legions level weird hmm. um, or Time Spiral level weird. I, th- there's going to be this whole thing in the in the I think that in the um, climax of the narrative that's been going on for the last five years with the Gatewatch setting up to fight Bolas, they're going to do something special for that set. So 
I don't I, I don't know what that means for the masterpieces. The, o- the only ones I feel real confident in at present is that there will be another eight in winter uh, 2019. And I, my only question is, you know, whether the distribution model will shift. I, I, I actually proposed um, on Twitter this week what I thought was a pretty solid model for how they should be doing this in the future. Um, so, like, basically, my product plan is a new product, which is an amalgam of a bunch of other things they've already done, called Modern Masterpieces. It's an annual modern-focused reprint set, plus a few new modern legal cards at 199 MSRP. So you drop from the 240 to the 199 and get more realistic about what those sets are supposed to cost, which means you give up some profit, in theory. Um, but you're going to have a better sell-through with that number. But then there's a 299 premium version that has six masterpieces in it that are modern specific and you set up a promise that they will have consistent frames because I, I think this is one of the things that will keep these sets hot for a long time that's been absent so far people want their decks to look the same so if you're going to put out a bunch of modern focused masterpieces over some period of time like five years or whatever you want them to be you can keep doing that and if they're all the same frame and it's a frame that is beloved um that it looks great is relatively subtle whatever you could even like that you could just choose to make them like uh 7th edition frames or original foil frames from like Urza's era and people would be like so stoked and just keep putting those out like that you can do it every year uh have no limits on the pre-orders though and route it to the local LGS for pickup and they get their profit share so you're supporting the LGSs you're still selling a premium product. You've even got a more expensive version of that product. Um, I think you're setting up a lot of product loyalty and people would have a lot of trouble pointing fingers. I mean, <laughs> we're magic players, so we'll still figure out a way to complain. But can you think of reasons why that's not the model they should be adopting? Uh, I mean, the hardest thing would be <laughs> would be my dogs. Uh, the hardest part of this would be uh, getting wizards to stay consistent on one frame. Right. Like that, that's part of the appeal is that, you know, you build that, <clears throat> that consistent look over all of these and then they have to commit to that for, you know, how many years? Um, so I don't, I think the idea is nifty. I would have to sit down and really ponder it to get a feel for whether or not I think it would work or not. I don't have an intuitive sense for it at the moment, but at the very least, that seems like a possible hurdle, uh, valid or not, that they would be grumpy about. Well, and keep in mind, I'm not saying that all masterpieces are using a consistent frame. I'm just saying that the annual release of a relatively small set, not 20 to 30, like 6, 8, 10 max that are sold in the premium version of, of the, um, you know, master set evolution. Um, those all have consistent frames because then modern, play- modern players get to play them in their decks and have their decks look um, all the same. One of the reasons that some of the earliest uh, Kaladesh masterpieces to go off the inventions uh, were all things from the Affinity deck was because there was four cards from the deck in in the invention. So you could you could build the Affinity deck and have it not all of it but a lot of it look very similar and that looked good and people were into that. And I don't think they've tapped into that enough. Like if you focus on um, a couple of different decks a year through that kind of a process, like. Jund and Merfolk get their cards, and then some this deck and that deck get their cards. Then over a period of time, people are going to be, you know, very into collecting those sets. Now, part of that has to be uh reconsidering whether they're foil, right? Or foiling both sides. Um, if you one thing people may have noticed is that the flip card foils don't curl. Because one of the reasons that a foil curls is that it has a different treatment and weight and density on one side than it does the other when you do both sides it's balanced and it doesn't curl so they need to rethink the process the the um premium process that they use to make sure that it is hyper attractive to competitive modern players and then you will see those cards go through the roof because one of the things that probably holds back a lot of masterpieces is that you know competitive true competitive players don't want to get a game loss for running them in their decks Yes. Yeah. That's a big problem uh, for sure. And all of my uh, competitive friends really dislike foils and pros are very cranky about it. Yeah. So, I mean, you can, you can address that with a new process. Yeah. Um, 
anyway, I mean, I think one of the other things that I, I, I don't give enough credit to in this in this theory of operations is the logistics of distributing these to the LGS. But part of that is because they've been dismantling their direct distribution to stores, which not a lot of players are fully in tune with, right? When they were, when the WPN network included direct distribution, distributing these kind of things was a lot easier. Now that they've decided to get rid of that, that's one of the reasons they chose not to sell it through the LGS because otherwise it would, in the current model, have to go through the distributors, which is not ideal for a very low print run object. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's an interesting idea and it could definitely work. Um, and I like the idea of producing something sort of consistent and reliable that players can go to. Uh, they know it will it will be consistent. It does feel like there's been a lot of all over the place, like, oh, we're going to do expeditions and now we're going to take a set off. And now we're going to bring them back. And now they're going to be permanent, but they look different. And then they look different. And remember when we said they were permanent? We're not, they're not permanent anymore. Mm, but we're going to bring them back in three weeks. Or, you know, in another set or two, like it's all over the place. They all look different. Um, and having something a little more consistent, a little tighter, that's a little easier for your target, your market to kind of target. It's definitely, definitely uh, interesting. Um, I wonder, I wonder if making it too easy to get the cards sort of takes away some of the exciting trading card game aspect of it um, in the same way that you can't purchase. So th- this set right now, like th- this mythic edition is pretty unique as far as magic cards go. Uh, you know, we got the world championship decks and things of that nature and collector's edition, international edition. But aside from the, I mean, you get the, from the vaults to commander's arsenal. Yeah. So they do them, but it just doesn't seem like, I mean, we haven't seen commander's arsenal again. That was like 2013. Yeah. What, where, I mean, what, oh, I'm sorry, and, and just to finish the thought, we don't see a lot of products where they give you every single card in a box for a higher price. People ask for it, but they don't do it very often. And doing it with your like ultra premium super chase cards might take away some of the excitement of cracking packs. Even if it works as a business model, they might find that it pulls away from some of the zeitgeist of the product. But that still doesn't mean that it's not feasible. I- I, I I I pondered on that as well when they first announced this, and but now that I've seen it in play, I no longer have that concern. I think that what we're missing a couple of things as guys who you know buy a lot of Magic product in any given year and tend to have a lot of it on hand, we're fairly out of touch with the like collectors who just want the one card from the set. They don't want to spend three hundred. They don't, and they're not in the like they're not interested in flipping it. Like there's a lot of people that just want to play the game and not think about any of that, and that's fine. Um, but you know, the dude that just wants to ready is just going to buy to ready on the open market. He's not going to buy the full set, mm-hmm. um, unless he's a hustler and the, you know, there's, there's that aspect to it, but there's also a timing factor. Like even if prices are suppressed somewhere in the next three months, push it out six, 12 months, three years or whatever. And these are basically legendary. Like they're like any of the other masterpieces, they're going to be only increasingly rare over time. Um, because the spigot is wide open during these GPs and then it's going to slam shut. And, you know, if you're going to, if you're planning on holding most of your inventory, that's that moment you're waiting for is where if there's a brief gap where they announce the next eight and you can't get any of the original eight, that's where you're going to see some upward price pressure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And they are, they're going to get super rare very, very soon. Uh, or should I say, you know, early-ish next year, mid-next year. I'm hoping early next year. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's an interesting concept um, that they might be able to take this down the path. Um, I don't know. I guess I would have to spend more time pondering it to really get a good feel for it. Anyway, Mythic Edition is going to be the kind of thing that a lot of people that did, didn't get in on it are going to choose to ignore. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. There's going to be a lot of cognitive dissonance around this op- this missed opportunity. Um, but uh, say lovey. So it goes. Not not the first, apparently not the last time that masterpieces will be underestimated. There will be other magic cards. Yep. Um, okay, so my second pick of the week <laughs> is uh, Open the Armory <clears throat> out of Shadows Over Innistrad. This is an uncommon... Uh, let me pull up the card text here for you. Two mana sorcery. Wow. What, what's up? Keep going, keep uh, going. Search your library for an aura or equipment, reveal it, and put it into your hand. 
uh, two mana sorcery, search your library for an aura equipment, put it in your hand. Shadows over Innistrad on common. It is in 9,000 EDH decks. That's why I said it was wild. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's it, like it's very easy to overlook. You kind of forget that it's there. If you built a deck that cared about this in the last, since Shadows Over and Strut came out, you probably would have seen it and went, oh, I'm going to grab one of those. But for people, you know, most of us who haven't specifically built that a deck that cares about this card, you don't really realize it. 9,000 decks since Shadows Over and Strut is quite good. Um, foils are about three bucks right now. I really like them. If you can grab them at that price, even cheaper is awesome. Um, it's an uncommon, they're not going to be $30 foils, but I think they will be nine or $10 foils. And if you're getting in at two fifty or three bucks, and then you can sell them at 10 or fr- you know, frankly, you can buy list them for 10 and store credit, you know, cash should be six bucks and store credit will be 10. Uh, you're that's, it's awesome. Um, and hopefully you can find a stack of them someplace. Maybe you've got some in the foil binder at your local store. Uh, just seems like a real sleeper card that's going to be $10 and no one's going to know it. This is where it's interesting. Like the difference, I think people think uncommons are a lot more common than they actually are versus rares. And specifically the foils. Once you get a few years out from a set being out of print, the a foil uncommon and a foil rare are not much different. Because though there are uh significantly more of those foils out in the wild the total number that are likely to stream through especially for a relatively obscure card like this uh stream through buy list is still going to be very low um it's going to be like this is going to be the kind of card that like dj calls out on breaking bulk um because no one's that that anyone that isn't thinking about playing relevant commander decks will even will will just burn right past this card in a binder Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I like the ramp here. I think you're almost certainly correct that it's going to be three to ten, probably somewhere less than two years. Doesn't seem like a super high priority pick to me, but it's it's easy breezy. Grab two, three, four copies, and every time, if you, I, I like to look at buy lists about once every three months. I have like a buy list box that's like waiting to buy list where it seems like it's going to be better than trying to sell at retail. Because maybe you have a big stack of things, maybe they're EDH cards that tend to are less than ten dollars and tend to sell one at a time, and it's just saving on shipping and whatever. Um, and this is the kind of thing that fits into that kind of binder real well. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. And I, you know, you don't want to have a million of them, uh, but you definitely want to have some of them so you get paid off occasionally. Yep. Okay, so. Uh, we've already kind of skipped ahead to segment four and done our discussion about Mythic Edition. So I guess we'll just cover off our segment three metagame we can review. Probably most important tournament of the week was the first weekend of Standard. We had the SEG team open in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we had Celestia tokens taking down, taking it down one, two. Uh, our boy Todd Stevens there, his team came in second. Well done, well done. Uh, Mono Red Aggro also was in the top eight. Boros Angels, Esper Control, Golgari Midrange. Um, surprise, surprise, mono red aggro is good in the fall. <laughs> yeah, that was all over the place, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, they just, they just keep, it's pretty clear that Wizards believes this is a linchpin for the standard format that a very, a, a, an aggro deck that can provide the clock for the rest of the format helps to push the meta in a certain way. If you believe that standard formats are rock, paper, scissors, it's the rock that anchors the rest of the format. We've seen it for years now. Um, And then you have various interesting mid-range and control decks that will pop up based on whatever the best cards are for those archetypes. And in this particular situation, the Celestia Tokens deck seems to be out there as tier one uh, ready. March of the Multitudes was Todd Stevens' pick that... Cliff and I were nodding our heads over um, during our set review when it was $5. And sure enough, that was a slam dunk pick that we laid on people. History of Benalia, or Benalia, um, up over $20 now. And as one of the top played cards in the format uh, in a couple of different archetypes, uh, pretty unlikely to retrace anytime soon since it's not one of the sets that's being heavily opened right now. Um Everybody's got to keep in mind that even though fall set rares and mythics are highly suspect as they come under supply pressure, stuff from last year 
um, can hold it hold a new price tier more easily just because there's so much more less supply pressure. Oh, that's the good stuff. Is you, you know, getting in on last year's mythics or chase cards uh, that people have kind of forgotten about or slept on. Uh, those are frequently a good payoff. Yeah, and during the brief period where standard was 18 months, uh, that was becoming a lost art. But now that we're back to 24 months, we're back in the swing of things. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I noticed a lot of Golgari here. Red, Red has developed since Monday when I was first uh, writing about this, but Golgari was very popular. Um, and the, oh, shoot. The, what decks were those? The Golgari mid-range. Uh, no, the, um, sorry. Wait, the word's coming to me. Uh, not explore. What's the one that double explores? Uh, Jade Light Ranger. Ranger. Is it explore? It is explore. It is explore. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Double explore. Sorry. Golgari. And we're getting there. Give me a minute. We're getting there. Golgari strategies (laughs) also had a really good showing, especially in the Star City Classic. And they're still hanging around. Um, Jade Light Ranger was everywhere. I wrote about it on Monday. Uh, the double explore effect and uh, just Golgari in general. The mid range seems to be the mid range strategy right now. They have Assassin's Trophy, obviously, which is what everyone's talking about. Both Vraska's uh, Relic Seeker and Golgari Queen. Relic Seeker, uh, yeah, Relic Seeker is real interesting. That's the one from uh, Ixalan that I think could end up being kind of a kind of sneak in here uh, and get some good price bumps so uh you know if there is a green black deck to be played in standard you know reed duke is going to play it so he will be an interesting one to keep an eye on uh because he will he will build the green black attrition deck in standard if it is there uh and that will tell you which way to look but i think jade light ranger is a is a real curious card if you can get in it's a you know six bucks seven bucks is a little high maybe uh but that could be a a 15 uh, rare i think um last set or last year, uh, smaller set and also, um, you know, could easily be in several decks, every green deck, basically. It, it's not in the the tokens deck isn't playing it, though. So there actually isn't several decks that other than Golgari, there isn't another green deck that's formed that yet. wants it. So yeah. yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as I said, this this format is not fully settled. However, I one of the couple interesting things about the Golgari deck, A, it's a pile of two-for-ones. Every single creature in the deck is a two-for-one. Burglar Rat, District Guide, Golgari Fine Broker, Azoni Thousand Eye, Jade Light Ranger, Merfolk Branchwalker, Ravenous Chupacabra, Thrashing Bronstron. Literally every creature does double duty. So massive amounts of grind potential. Um, they also don't want Assassin's Trophy, which is consistent with what Todd told us during the set review, that he that in testing, it was becoming clear that giving people a land and standard was was too uh, much of a negative, um, and that given the uh, availability of alternate uh, kill spells, they probably weren't going to run it that much. And in the Golgari deck that made top eight at the team open, um, they were running Cast Down, Fine Finality, and Vraska's Contempt. Oh. They ran in zero Assassin's Trophy in the main, zero in the side. I guess I missed that. So, so if I was going to make another pick for the week, it would be a sell. I I, I think the foil sell call on Assassin's Trophy is still well. Oh well yeah, through. I mean that was um, never not a sell, right? It was like sixty dollars or some nonsense. It was like a hundred dollars for foils <laughs> at one point. Now I'm seeing them in the sixty to seventy range. I still think it's got way further to drop, and it's very likely to get a WMCQ yeah. promo or a GP promo at some point. <laughs> it's going to be tricky to make money on Assassin's. Yeah. Truth, be, truth be told, I saw the Golgari decks, and I'm not even sure that I looked for Assassin's trophy. I just sort of assumed it was there and didn't pay that much attention after the fact. I was like, oh, that's green, black, and standard. They're playing Assassin's trophy. Um, hmm. So I guess they have the option if they want it, if they decide that they need it, but. Um, uh, since we're doing fine without it anyways the other deck uh that i saw we saw a lot of was the boros angels deck and that's the only time i'm gonna call it that and if you are a content creator or you work for a website and you don't call it uh boros mid-rangels then get the hell off of my internet uh a really weird deck <laughs> you, you didn't you didn't like mapster pieces but you like boros mid-rangels mid-rangels it's come on now it is per- it is a boros mid-range is not better than maps angels i i buy it but that's not better than masterpieces you're you're picking the and problem choosing is now. Ma- the p in the middle of masterpieces bugs me i don't like it it's, it's like a stop in the middle of it. <laughs> okay. anyways 
It's so, so to me, the, to me, the deck is kind of weird. You know, given the is the much the amount of magic I played, and I, you know, I was always sort of inclined to be like, here are a bunch of cool cards. I'm going to put them in a deck together. Oh, my curve is too high, and none of my cards give me any advantage whatsoever. And if I don't draw a perfect mix of lands and spells, I lose. Uh, I have definitely run into that trap a lot because the deck looks cool on paper, and then you play it, and it feels awkward. I don't understand how this deck is doing so well, but I will accept that it is. Um, I'm curious. Well, part of it, part of it is history of Benalia, because absent that card, I understand exactly what you're saying. There are there are versions of mid range decks where you can have a bunch of individually powerful cards, but if the synergies aren't don't end up steamrolling your opponent at some point, you're right. You have to be on curve all the time to keep pace. And if you hit curve, you're usually in good shape. But if you fall off curve and you get stuck with a four, a two five drops in your hand or something, or two four drops for an awkward turn where the red deck is just like curving out, like, and then dropping something to draw a bunch more cards, then yeah, you, you can be left behind in a hurry. History of Benalia being able to gum up the ground and provide card advantage on three and a white deck is, is a key piece of that puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. Uh, I don't know. Anything else in standard here coming coming at you? Well, one of the other picks we made during the cast with Todd was Runaway Steamkin. Flagged that at those foils at four to five dollars as being a double up. Boom, they are doubled up because the card is seeing play in uh, lots of red decks in standard, and also seeing a modicum of modern play as uh, streamers and and pros experiment with it in. What I suspect will end up being fringe versions of red decks, but who knows? I mean, many of the decks that have appeared in modern in the last couple of years have been discounted as likely to end up on the fringes and then have like, come Humans, right to the spirits. forefront. Um, I mean, one of the, the cards that Todd missed when we were talking about it was we flagged Creeping Chill for him as something that might reinvigorate Dredge in modern. Now, Dredge isn't really his forte in modern, so it's not a huge surprise that he wasn't real confident in the card, but it slotted right in and dredge decks like were all over the place in one of the major tournaments in the last week um i can't remember which one it was but they basically like four of the decks in some top eight somewhere were all dredge decks that were running three or four Mm. copies of creeping chill um so uh a lot of cards that have uh uh, guilds of ravnica already making an impact i feel good for having i didn't come up with it but i feel good for having respected that i even mentioned it to some friends and they told me i was an idiot uh, but that is not true. So take that, friends. <laughs> uh, Runaway Steamkin foils at ten may not even be a sell. Um, if it actually posts up in modern, those foils could end up fifteen to twenty easily. Especially if the red deck keeps doing well in in standard, and I sus- very much suspect it will. It's got all the right tools to do the same thing that fall red aggro decks have done forever. At some point, it will not be the pinnacle of the meta anymore. Eventually, they figure out how to handle it, but. Red cards are strong. Uh, foil pool for a rare that just came out is not looking particularly deep. I would not be surprised if these foils end up in the fifteen dollar range. Well, that's, before all that's a little the- weird because what do you what do you do with it? Uh, I mean, like I, it just seems to me like the type of person who's playing the red deck probably isn't the person generally who's foiling their deck. Now, if this turns into a modern card, we, we, I'm there with you. Uh, you know what we we have said. Content creators in MG Finance have said for years, it's like one of the old chestnuts, that standard decks don't get foiled out. No, I'm not. It's I'm just not, saying not true. It is, it is more It's more true that modern decks... It's definitely... You're correct to say that modern decks are more likely to be foiled because they have a longevity. Um, you get to use them for years if you want to. But people buy standard foils. You, you can go look at, go back and look at car, standard staples that have never showed up anywhere, that aren't important in modern, aren't important in EDH, and their foils still get sold. If they didn't get sold, they would drop to the ground. My concern isn't that it's a standard card. It's that it's a red standard card. I think the red is the key component here um, because I think, again, that red decks tend to be more budget-oriented. Uh, so like if you're sure. in the market for that, you're definitely not in the market for foils. Now it's not to say that nobody does it, but like I, to fairy decks, yeah, people will foil their fairy to fa- foil to fairy standard decks. Um, I guess I just, I'm not sold that people are doing it with steamkin decks again, as long as it's only standard. Once you move to modern, I think you break that like, oh, it's a red deck. People don't bother 
type of thing. And I think it's one of very few archetypes that people kind of skip are more likely to skip foiling on. See, I think I think the opposite. I think that in modern red has a reputation as a budget deck and also being relatively inflexible in the face of a shifting meta. Like it still just does what it does and whether it's good or not on that weekend is largely going to be about how well you draw. Although there is still admittedly a lot of technical play to the red deck in modern. But in standard, um, given what has happened over the last several years, where red has been good almost every season, ever since blue-black devotion uh, ad infinitum in Theros block standard, since then we've had a lot of good red decks, starting, I think, in cons block. And I think that uh, enough competitors respect their fall red decks that there are just a lot of great players playing red now because they want to win tournaments and that those people may invest in the foils. Ultimately, you're going to get to put your theory to the test because in about four to six weeks, we can easily check back in on some of these good standard rare foils and see whether they've reversed course. Well, if I'm wrong, it will be for some other reason. And if it's expensive, I'm going to claim that it's good and modern. Well, I mean, <laughs> so just prepare yourself for me even, to refuse even, to seed ground on this. Even if it keeps going up, if the copies I ordered are, are rotting at my family home in Ohio and I don't ever put my hands on them and sell them into the market before they reverse course, I'm not going to look any smarter. All right. Uh, so we basically already did segment four as a subsection of your pick two. Um, do you have anything else that you want to share with our listeners this week, I guess? Uh, I think we're good for now. Okay, awesome. Uh, that brings us to the end of episode 139, actually on the lighter side this week, but only through strong arming. Uh, where can our listeners find you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter at MDGCritic, as well as via my occasional articles on MDGPrice.com. And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday for MTG Price doing the Watchtower series cards to keep an eye on. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. That brings us to the end of episode 139. Uh, I've really enjoyed our discussion this week, James. Uh, Thank you for joining me, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. And we'll see all you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Until then, may all your editions be mythic. Mm-hmm.